First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin with a frustrating situation for hundreds of Vancouver employees of an offshore company who say they haven't been paid in months. The company's president and CEO rubbed shoulders with the highest levels of Canadian government, but as Nadia Stewart reports, he's now being accused of abandoning his workers. They didn't say that like they ran out of funds or something. They said Since May, Elaine and Manny Vanen have been in a cash crunch. That was the last time they received a paycheck from their former employer. And they still don't know when they'll get the rest of what's owed to them. I feel cheated because I trusted the company, I stayed with the company, and then like I owe a lot of money to banks now. I mean, if they saw a problem coming, they should have told the employees earlier. In true startup fashion, Innovation Labs was started in a Vancouver McDonald's by a few passionate engineers. They work for Estuary Innovation Group, an offshore startup focused on software and technology development. Founded in 2013 by Ethan Sun, the company has 400 North American workers and 1,100 more in China. According to company emails, the problems started in April, when Vancouver employees did not receive their April 15th paycheck. That money later came through at the end of the month. But by June 15th, employees say it happened a second time. In an email, management explains why. They just said like they have money and they are using it to buy another company. And then like they have problems transferring some money from China to Canada. And because of that, like payroll was delayed. He says they were also promised a 5% bonus if they hung on. Many did. But by July, there was still no pay and no bonus. And then on August 1st, they um, put out the suggestion of going for us for the employees who go on EI. Since then, they've heard nothing from Sun, their CEO, seen here with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and here with former Premier Christy Clark. We call the Vancouver office along with the cell number of the CFO and other senior staffers. We still have not received a response to our request for an interview. As for these two, their debts are piling up. Manny Vanan took out a $20,000 line of credit to cover the cost of living in Vancouver. He's now paying back that hefty bill himself. Elaine's future also in limbo as she waits for answers. This is a problem that we don't know when it will be resolved. Just tell us what, what's going to happen and then we plan for ourselves. Nadia Stewart, Global News. Is honesty always the best policy? That question is being raised tonight after a high-ranking Canadian politician advised Canadians to tell the truth about their pot use when asked at the U.S. border. Jeff Hastings joins us with more on the story. And Jeff, a U.S.-based immigration lawyer says that's a bad idea. That's right. We're dealing with several different sets of rules here, and it really depends where you're standing and who you're talking to. This right here is Canadian soil. This time next year, recreational marijuana use should be legal. That's Washington State in the United States of America. And right now in that state, recreational marijuana use is legal. However, if you talk to the border guards as you go across, it may be a different story. 
One of America's founding fathers, George Washington, is famous for allegedly saying, I cannot tell a lie. And if you ask Canada's federal parliamentary secretary for public safety at the American border, neither should you, even if the question is about whether you've ever used marijuana. Would your advice, though, to, be, to, to Canadians at that point next year, whenever it does become legal, would your advice be to be honest and tell the truth? Uh, you always have to be honest and, be, and tell the truth when you're at the border. I absolutely was astonished. I couldn't believe what I was reading. Attorney Len Saunders has a booming immigration practice in Blaine, Washington, just the other side of B.C.'s Peace Arch border crossing, helping Canadians denied American entry because they admitted to a border officer they've smoked pot is a huge part of his business. I don't think Mark Holland fully understood when he said his comments that when you admit to smoking marijuana at a U.S. port of entry, you're not just going to be denied entry, but you're going to be barred for life. Just ask Jessica Goldstein about telling the truth at the border. They deem me a habitual user, which makes not really much sense because uh, in uh, Washington it is now legal. She and many others must now apply for costly waivers to enter the U.S. It goes back to the issue of the government not providing clarity as to any discussions that they might be having with the Americans to take into account this new reality that's on its way. Holland's words aren't inspiring confidence in Ottawa's opposition benches that Canadians will see a smooth transition to legal weed. It's a real problem and his answer show how the, the government is going too fast with that. The standard advice if you ever get asked about drug use at the border is that you don't have to answer the question and if necessary withdraw your application for entry. So Ottawa and the provinces have a great deal of discussion to have ahead of next year's looming legalization. The United States has been having a similar conversation for quite some time. Eight states have now legalized adult recreational marijuana use, and soon we're told officials from both countries will be talking about this North American phenomenon. Back to you. Jeff Hastings at the border for us tonight. Jeff, thank you. RCMP are looking for witnesses to a possible hit and run in South Surrey this morning that's left a pedestrian with serious injuries. It happened near 143rd Street and 92nd Avenue just before 7.30 a.m. Grace Key is in that area tonight. Grace, I know you spoke to some of those who were first on the scene. and We want to warn our viewers tonight some of the details they told you are disturbing. Yeah, certainly, Chris. And of course, this is now we are learning has come to a very tragic end here. Aftar Singh Ball, we did speak with several of his family members. They told us how, you know, he worked hard to try and come here into Canada. He'd only been here for a short time. He had dreams of staying here, starting a new life. And now that has come to a tragic end. 27-year-old Aftar Ball had only been in Canada for a month. He came here from India on a work visa, hoping to start a new life. Now his family is mourning his death, a victim of an apparent hit and run. Neighbor Mandeep Mundi describes how her husband was the first to find him on the ground bleeding. My husband's like, oh, I know this guy, right? Yeah, so he quickly, by the time he saw that he saw the bleeding was coming from his ears and from the mouth. So he tried to give a CPR and then... Um, I think the, by the time ambulance came. Paramedics were called shortly after 7 in the morning to 92nd Avenue near 144th Street in Surrey. Aftar was on his way to take a driver's test. He was going to become a commercial truck driver. Mandate's husband says he thought a car had hit Aftar. First I thought he, his like, it's not accident. He said I didn't even think about accident because his whole body, there's no, not even one scratch. Only the blood was coming out from his mouth and ear. When he saw the phone 
and the a shoe too far from him, then he thought it might be accident, somebody hit and ran. Surrey RCMP have been canvassing the neighborhood and looking for surveillance video. At this point, they say they are investigating a possible hit and run. There wasn't much of a scene uh, to indicate exactly what had happened. Because there are no witnesses and no independent video surveillance that we've been able to find, it's very difficult to tell what happened prior to the incident. It happened along a dead-end street in a residential neighborhood. There is no through traffic here, but some residents say they often see vehicles parked at the end of the road. Always sports cars comes, and always, I don't know what they do, they go in a forest. Morning, evening, night. So, I mean, we just think they're, I don't know, selling drugs, doing drugs, so we just keep away from them. We did speak one neighbor here. He said that uh, at about 6.30 in the morning, he did hear a loud bang. He didn't really think anything uh, of it, didn't really go out to look. And then eventually, as he was on his way to work, he did see the ambulance here. Now, in terms of the next step in this uh, investigation, the collision investigators were out here earlier. So they will, again, be trying to piece together exactly what happened. More work to do. Okay, thanks very much, Grace Key in Surrey tonight. Well, RCMP in Surrey also investigating another shooting. It happened last night, and this time the victim drove himself to White Rock Hospital in a bullet-riddled pickup truck. The investigation led police to a home in the 5300 block of 164th Street near Colebrook Road. No word yet on the victim's condition, background, or possible suspects. More familiar faces are entering the race today to replace Christy Clark as B.C. Liberal leader. Former Finance Minister Mike DeYoung announcing his bid along with newly elected Vancouver Langara MLA Michael Lee. Let's bring in our Keith Baldry for more on these latest entries, Keith. Yeah, Sophie, uh, you know, this this list, uh, this hill just keeps growing. This is the most crowded leadership uh, race we've seen in this province. Probably go back to 1986 when 12 people ran for the social credit leadership. Uh, and it's going to get bigger uh, next week. More about that in a moment. You mentioned the two today. So one familiar face, I think, to a lot of British Columbians. Mike DeYoung has been on the scene since uh, the early 1990s and a minister for 16 years. Michael Lee, a former a political aide to former federal justice minister Kim Campbell some time ago, a re- relatively... Uh, a little known uh, new entrant to the BC political scene. We caught up with Mike DeYoung, who didn't have a, a kickoff event today, but Mike Lee had one that was a, an impressive one. Here's the two of them. Uh, we hope that we are electing uh, the next captain of our team and the next premier, but the first job is to be opposition leader and to hold the NDP and Mr. Horrigan to account, uh, and I think I have the skill set to do that as well. I want to lead the BC Liberal Party and this province so that we can create a more prosperous and caring British Columbia where our kids and their kids will be able to afford to live and build their futures. As I mentioned, they're not done yet, the B.C. Liberals. At least one more candidate expected to jump into the race next week. I think he's going to have an impressive showing. That's Todd Stone, the former transportation minister. That'll bring the field to eight, perhaps even more after that. But I think eight is the number. Whether they're all there at the finish line in February is another matter entirely. Eight is enough. Keith, thank you. (laughs) Well, we just came through the most damaging wildfire season in B.C. history. And how the people in power handled it is a topic of great discussion this week at a meeting of B.C. municipalities. Tanya Beja spoke to leaders about the lessons learned and what they do differently if it happens again next year. It was B.C.'s worst wildfire season on record and an exhausting one for those who lived through it. We can manage a crisis, but when a crisis stretches into a month, 
um, it's very hard to continue to manage that. You've actually said to them, no, you can't go home, no, you can't do this. And that's a difficult thing to do, and it works for a short period of time, but long term, it's not a good plan. Civic leaders gathered at the Union of BC Municipalities to share both their challenges and successes in managing that crisis. For some of BC's smaller rural communities, alerting residents to a sudden evacuation order was a trial in itself. I have an aging demographic. They take out their hearing aids. They don't hear the door. They don't hear the phone. And so just trying to get the word out for middle of the night evacuations is extremely tough. More than 45,000 people were forced from their homes during the wildfires. The Caribou Regional District says while many appreciated updates through online videos and town hall meetings, better communication is still needed. The district also wants the province and forest industry to find ways of clearing dead and downed trees to prevent another fire season like the last. Because one of the things that fueled the fires this year was the dead and down, what was on the ground. So those fires got very hot and then they became entities unto themselves. So those are things we have to look at. While BC communities look for strategies to be better prepared, they're also still tallying the damage. Tanya Beja, Global News. Langley parents and students are rallying in favor of LGBTQ support programs in their district, and they took their message to the school board today. Catherine Urquhart joins us with more on this. Catherine, this is a policy that's intended to make LGBTQ students feel safe, which you think is a good thing. So why the conflict? Well, Sophie, there's an ongoing debate in this community about what kids should be taught regarding gender identity. Now, some people are opposed to new provincial curriculum called SOGI, which stands for Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. But right now, here behind me, we have more than 100 people who are rallying to show their support for that new curriculum. They're hoping to send a message to the school board. Among the people here is Cole Dirks, who is 15 and transgender. It's extremely important to me, obviously, as a transgender person, that uh, transgender people are respected and, you know, just treated as anyone else would be. Um, you know, no matter how old they are or if they're in school or not, you know, it's just important to feel safe around their peers and around their teachers. Now this group here today will make a presentation tonight to the Langley School Board, which is expected to continue rolling out the new SOGI curriculum. Sophie, Chris, back to you. We'll see how it goes. Catherine, thank you. How would you like to be rewarded for good driving? One insurer is offering a new app that could lead to a big discount on optional insurance. They say the technology is sophisticated enough to tell if you're a low-risk or a high-risk driver how it works and why ICBC isn't offering it in just over a minute. A rooftop message in Puerto Rico that likely saved lives. What the U.S. Coast Guard crew found when they touched down, coming up. And a major scandal in college basketball, allegations of bribery and fraud at some of the biggest schools in the NCAA. That's coming up later on the news hour. But first... A radical change in another app has social media users excited tonight. Twitter is branching out, experimenting with 280 character tweets. That is double the previous character limit. The company says it's making the move in an effort to allow people to share their thoughts without running out of room to tweet. 
Well, right now, the change isn't for everyone. It's only going to be rolled out to a small group of accounts. It's not clear when it will be offered across the board, uh, but you will get to see those extended tweets, even if you are not allowed to tweet them. I, I thought 140 characters was too much for a lot of people, <laughs> including myself. But you got to be creative, right? A lot more emojis. Mm -hmm. Now, with ICBC rates going up again this year and probably next, a private insurance company is hoping a new app will help it attract drivers who want to save money on optional insurance. As John Waugh reports, the app tracks driving habits and rewards safe drivers with a discount. Let's face it, even when people drive like this, they picture themselves like this behind the wheel. I'm a good driver, <laughs> obviously. I would think I'm a great driver. Exceptional. <laughs> this is my, my discount. One insurance company asking them to put their money where their mouth is, offering a smartphone app that tracks driver behavior in exchange for a discount on its optional insurance rates. They want to tell us they're better drivers than the average, and by having this application, they can show us. Biller Direct, the first to bring user-based insurance to B.C., the app tracks hard braking, excessive speeding, and late-night driving. Discounts start at 5% to sign up, up to 25% after a six-month evaluation. Overall, British Columbians using more and more telematics will become better drivers and hopefully have additional savings. Some say the payoff isn't worth the loss of privacy. I don't know how I'd feel about them having a tracking device in my car. A little bit invasive to me. I don't know. I don't think I'd like it. <laughs> Others desperate for a break on their insurance rates, asking why ICBC doesn't offer a similar deal. For me, I think it'd be great. I think I'd get a huge discount. My philosophy is if you're not doing anything wrong, who cares what's, who's watching? ICBC says its first focus is tech that curbs distracted driving, but not ruling out a future pilot project with user-based insurance. Whatever we do, we're going to do it right. Uh, we're going to do it carefully. Uh, we're going to do it based on customer feedback. A vehicle has been actually pushed right underneath the vehicle in front of it. While it might help you avoid accidents like this, it won't get you discounts across the board just yet. But be sure, Big Brother is now a backseat driver on BC Roads. John Hua, Global News. You're never really alone, are you? No, you aren't. <laughs> Hills on fire in California. It's scary. It's really scary. Why the challenge for firefighters is only just beginning. And the working poor startling statistics from the latest homeless count. It's no secret Metro Vancouver is in the middle of an affordable housing crisis, but today's new homeless count hammers at home with some startling numbers. No fewer than half of the people living on the street blame the cost of shelter. And as Linda Aylesworth reports, a shocking percentage of them are employed. Agatha has lived on the streets of Vancouver, quite literally, for 25 years. Like I was raised well, but you know, you, you live in an abusive relationship and then that escalates to, you know, and then you become homeless. So. She's just one of 3,605 people who participated in this year's Metro Vancouver homeless count. That's a 30% increase over the last count done in 2014. Bottom line, the homeless crisis continues to grow despite the efforts and commitments to stem the tide. Half of respondents said they were living in Metro Vancouver for at least 10 years before finding themselves homeless. The reasons are many. 
We know that affordable dwellings have declined within Metro Vancouver at an estimated rate of 8% per year since 2007. Vancouver is home, so to speak, to the vast majority of homeless, 2,138, followed by Surrey, then Langley. And while youth homelessness has slightly improved, other groups are doing worse. The number of seniors has increased, seniors who are struggling, seniors who can no longer afford the rents. But it is Metro Vancouver's Indigenous population that is hardest hit, making up 34% of the homeless counted. That means that if you're an Indigenous person in Metro Vancouver, you're more than 13 times likely to be homeless than if you're non-Indigenous. And it's getting worse. The report concludes, not surprisingly, that more housing and more services for things like mental health and addiction, which affects 82% of homeless, is needed, and that all levels of government have to chip in. Simply responding to demands of the homeless person costs approximately $55,000 annually, compared with $37,000 to house them. You know, we all got to learn to just accept what it is, you know, and maybe one day there will be change, right? Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Some emotional stories are expected in Smithers this week, where hearings have begun for the National Inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women. The inquiry will hear from more than 40 people, and Commissioner Michelle Audette says she hopes to get answers that will improve the system. The families and survivors will help us understand what went wrong, what worked, and how to make life better and safer for all uh, Indigenous women and girls, and indeed for all Canadians. The inquiry will be in Smithers for three days and then heads to Winnipeg. Saudi Arabian women accelerate into the future. You won't, see, you won't be seeing that anymore. Getting behind the wheel used to mean flogging or even jail time, but not anymore. What's driving the change coming up later? Also ahead, what's in that sports drink that makes it a bad call for young athletes? Well, the fire season is definitely not over in California. The Canyon Fire broke out on Monday, forcing evacuations in three communities, including Anaheim. At least one home and a big rig have been destroyed, the flames being fanned by those strong Santa Ana winds. And with the fire only 5% contained, NBC's Miguel Almaguer reports on the frantic scramble to save homes. This is the sound and the sight of firefighters losing ground in the suburbs of Los Angeles. The notorious Santa Ana winds turning this fire into a blowtorch before sunrise in Corona. It's scary. It's really scary. It makes your heart stop. It freaks you out just knowing that it's so close. 1,500 people in a scramble to escape the flames quickly closing in. Leave the area now. 500 homes in the path of the fire. Freeways and roads leading to safety surrounded by the blaze. Known as the Canyon Fire, 25-mile-an-hour winds whip through these dry hills, funneling the flames like a river towards homes. A non-stop air attack, helicopters using night vision soaring into neighborhoods. With Southern California now beginning Santa Ana wind season, the most dangerous weeks are ahead. But the fire season has already cost a record $2 billion. And now the firefight is getting more dangerous here 
every day and every night. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News, Los Angeles. A stranded family in Puerto Rico is safe thanks to their ingenuity in calling for help. A U.S. Customs and Border Protection helicopter was conducting search and rescue operations when the crew spotted a message that couldn't be missed on the roof of the house. The home had been cut off by a landslide, and the chopper crew had to land on a nearby mountaintop and push their way through debris to get there. Three people were found to be in medical distress and were stabilized by the team. And still, Puerto Rico is struggling to repair infrastructure destroyed in the storm. And President Donald Trump is defending his administration's response to the disaster. Tonight in Puerto Rico, the lines are long and some tempers are short. I need to get out of here. Why? Because we feel desperate. It's not just me. This is a scary situation. At San Juan's airport, a desperate exodus on the few commercial flights. Vanessa Schisler is running low on baby formula for four-week-old Ava, so she's frantically trying to escape to Florida. Today, President Trump announced he'd visit Puerto Rico next week and defended the federal response. We've gotten A-pluses on Texas and on Florida, and uh, we will also on Puerto Rico. But the difference is this is an island sitting in the middle of an ocean. FEMA announcing thousands of additional troops and a Navy hospital ship headed to the island. It's very urgent. San Juan's mayor says while she appreciates FEMA's help so far, there's been a lot of red tape. Boots are on the ground now. They have to start walking. And, and that's what seems to be taking uh, a little too long. The president also tweeting because of its broken infrastructure and massive debt, Puerto Rico is in deep trouble. That didn't sit well with some Puerto Ricans waiting in bank lines today who feel the U.S. territory is often an afterthought. I think we just get a, a lot more excuses than, and silence than we should. Now, a humanitarian crisis is unfolding. Most hospitals here at a standstill on backup generators. Not enough power for critical surgeries. We only have one available, and all the other areas are without um, electricity. So the problem with that is the, the humidity. It's too high to, to work. But help is on the way. More than 90 humanitarian flights a day. These supplies delivered today by the Dallas Mavericks and Puerto Rican point guard J.J. Barea. It's going to take months and months, maybe a year, to get everything back to normal. Tonight, normal seems so distant. Gabe Gutierrez, NBC News, San Juan, Puerto Rico. In Health Matters tonight, the Canadian Pediatric Society is calling for a ban on selling sports and energy drinks to children. In a new report, researchers say they pose serious health risks. The report found energy drinks can cause heart problems and hyperactivity because of high amounts of caffeine. And sports drinks contribute to obesity and poor dental health due to their sugar content. Today's recommendation comes six years after a U.S. organization published similar findings. The reason why it's coming out now is that we've noticed how more and more prevalent and more endemic it's getting uh, with a lot of people consuming sports drink and energy drinks without necessarily knowing what the risks are. Uh, and although, as you said, they've been around for quite some time, I think what we're seeing uh, these days is a bit of a, uh, an explosion of them, if you will, just more and more people consuming them. The Pediatric Society says energy and sports drinks should be banned for anyone under the age of 18. Also in health news tonight, the B.C. government has begun a new vaccination campaign to protect boys from several kinds of cancer. Grade 6 boys can now get the HPV vaccine for free. 
Human papillomavirus is one of the most common sexually transmitted infections, and it can cause several kinds of cancer in men and women. Three out of four sexually active people will get HPV at some point in their lives, and most show no symptoms. A huge step forward for equal rights. This video once got her arrested, but her act of defiance simply by driving is about to change everything in Saudi Arabia. And a bomb in a bush causes a stir in wine country. Certainly not your ordinary landscaping feature, the mystery of an explosive found in an Okanagan front yard right after the forecast. Well, that's not something you want to find. <laughs> garden gnome, garden, garden bomb. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what I'd rather. Not quite the same thing. No. All right, let's check in with meteorologist Christy Gordon for a look at our forecast, and that looks Pretty nice behind you, Christy. Sure does. So we started off a little fall like this morning, but boy, did we turn that around. Look at it out there. So sensational conditions, and we're still advertising a comeback for summer for the next two days. Not quite as hot as what they're dealing with in Toronto and Ottawa, where they have actually a heat warning in place right now. Humidity levels up to 34 degrees for them tomorrow, but it is certainly going to be sensational. Get out there, plan your activities, because... This might be the last blast of summer, everyone. These were your temperatures today. Inland, further uh, towards Hope and Chilliwack, hitting 24 degrees. Near the water, about 18, 19 degrees. This is a little bit above uh, seasonal by about 2 to 3 degrees. But some areas in the province will be a good 9 degrees above seasonal in the coming days. Not record-breaking, but it's certainly coming close. The jet stream driving these systems well to the north of us, pulling in that warmth across the south, and that warmth in the the interior will filter out towards the coast, and that's why we'll really start to see things heat up tomorrow and into Thursday in particular. So this is your tomorrow. All of that moisture being driven towards Whitehorse and Dees Lake. We'll still see dry conditions, but cloud across the coastal regions. But inland regions, lots of sunshine. If you do see any cloud, it would be mostly in the morning, maybe a bit of fog, a little bit of low-level cloud, and then that should break apart. Kamloops hitting 27 degrees tomorrow, so that is 9 degrees above seasonal. 26 in Merritt tomorrow, 25 in Whistler. These are early September, late uh, August temperatures, really. South Coast, 21 to 26 degrees, incredible conditions. And then Thursday will be even hotter. So we'll, heating up to, we'll be heating up to 28 on Thursday. Always a range in temperature across Metro Vancouver, areas away from the water being a little hotter. And then we plummet back to fall Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Sunday only warming up to 15 degrees with a chance of showers. Now, we have one woman celebrating 101 years today. Congratulations to Muriel Archer and three anniversaries for you. One big one, 75 years together, Joan and Bud Tarling, and then two other couples celebrating 70 years, Edna and Cliff Amesbury and Margaret and Len Beeler. So congratulations to you. And a couple busy chipmunks. Those are chipmunks, right? From Jane Fletcher. This was taken on the first day of fall. So thanks, Jane. I'm sure they're busy preparing for the months to come. Very cool. Thanks, Christy. Well, RCMP were called to a usually quiet South Okanagan neighborhood last night for a bizarre item found in the garden. Right outside of Nick and Arena Horizon Horizon Oh, I can't say it. Horslandberg's <laughs> front door in a well-maintained bush, they found an old unexploded bomb. 
Now, they moved from Abbotsford a month ago, and they're not sure how this got there or how long it's been there, but it is potentially explosive. So RCMP inspected it and then posted a guard at the site overnight while the bomb squad was dispatched from Vancouver. Needed to call Nick right away because he's military man, <laughs> so he knows his stuff. Unexploded, complete with fins and still the army head on it. The bomb squad arrived late last night and immediately set to work removing the explosive as carefully as possible. Turns out it was date-stamped 1945. They safely disposed of it, but there is still no word on how it got there. Quite the mystery. Mm -hmm. Well, hard to believe this is generating headlines around the world in 2017. Saudi Arabia has announced that women will soon be allowed to drive. NBC's Kelly Kobiea has the details. Tonight, Saudi women who fought for the right to drive are celebrating. Saudi Arabia will never be the same again, one activist tweeted. The rain begins with a single drop. She was arrested after posting this video of herself behind the wheel. In 2017, Saudi Arabia still had a ban on women driving cars, the only country in the world to do so. The penalty? Fines, flogging, for some women, jail time. The ban had been justified by the government under strict Islamic law. Activists pushing for change on social media say they've been gaining ground. Women granted limited voting rights in 2015, last weekend allowed in the National Stadium for the first time. And today, this surprise announcement. A royal decree has been issued in Saudi Arabia giving women the right to drive. The change will take effect in June of next year, giving this ultra-conservative country 10 months to adjust to having a woman in the driver's seat. Kelly Kobiella, NBC News. Amazing. It's about time. Mm. It sure is. Why do they need 10 months to adjust? Just let them get out there. <laughs> That's a very good point. I want to know that. Okay. Let's do it. They've certainly waited this long. So. They've waited a long time. Hello. Hey, how you doing? And you and you and you. And Very well. Uh, so, why does Freddie Montero of the Whitecaps not want to celebrate when he scores goals against his old team, Seattle? For my reason, it's like uh, I respect them. The Caps really don't care if he doesn't like to celebrate against his old team just as long as he scores. Also ahead, they just made it official. So, why are British bookies no longer taking bets on a royal engagement? Will we see a Montero celebration or not? We know we won't, but we might see a goal. Oh, well, hopefully you see a goal for the yeah. Whitecaps tomorrow. Actually, if he scores, it'll break his uh, best-ever season record. Hmm. It'll be number 14. Oh, tomorrow the Whitecaps are in Seattle for the first time this year, and a win would be huge for the Caps as they try to hold down first place in the West. They have a tough schedule down the stretch. The trip to Seattle also means the first time Freddie Montero returns to play there, and that's a big deal. Because he is one of the great sounders of all time. He is revered like the Space Needle is revered, except he's a lot shorter. That's Freddie Montero's old life when he was a sounder sniper. Four years and 60 goals made him a fan favorite in Seattle. And those fans have never seen him wear another uniform at CenturyLink Field. Well, I'm expecting uh, some new emotion in, in my career. Uh, I mean... It's something that's going to be special for sure, but uh, 
the only thing that is not going to change is that the desire for me to win the three points for Vancouver Whitecaps. Reina to Chera, plays it through Freddie Montero's onside. Freddie Montero! And Montero has been helping the Whitecaps win a lot of games lately. In fact, the 13 goals he has scored so far this season ties the most he ever got in one year with Seattle. Now, in two games at BC Place against Seattle this season, Montero has three goals against his old team. He was subdued after scoring each and every one of them, and he says he will be the same way if he scores in Seattle as well. Well, my reason it's like uh, I respect them. At some point, they were uh, the reason that I was playing for that team. You know, they they go to the game, they watch the game, they support the team, and somehow they support the team to pay our salary that's why I respect them and if in the future something happened uh, in a different team I would do the same. Of course there have been other goals against other teams that Freddie Montero has been able to celebrate a bit more. Since July 5th he has scored eight times for Vancouver and assisted on five other Whitecap goals and Vancouver's record since July 5th eight wins two losses and three draws. Side well, we'll stay with Could soccer. Dortmund, Real Madrid, who've won the last two Champion Leagues in Europe. Actually, three of the last four. Gareth Bale, nice volley in the 18th. And it doesn't seem there's a Real Madrid game without a Cristiano Ronaldo goal, two to be exact. Yes, emphatic indeed. A 3-1 Real Madrid beats Dortmund. Same group, Group H, it's Tottenham against Apoel of Cyprus. This is a weird play. Roland Salai of Applewell. Hugo Lloris of Tottenham chasing. Oh, no goal. Tottenham survives that mistake. And then they turn loose Harry Kane for one. That's two. Coming up, three. Three goals for Kane. Kane, three. Applewell, nothing. Or Tottenham, three. Applewell, nothing. Your choice. Four NCAA assistant basketball coaches and six others have been charged with various counts of fraud and corruption after an FBI investigation into illegal payments to steer star college basketball players to agents, financial advisors, clothing and shoe companies. And this might not be all the people they catch in this net. This is the dark underbelly of college basketball, say federal prosecutors, today charging four assistant coaches from prominent schools. Chuck Person of Auburn, Tony Bland, USC, Lamont Evans, Oklahoma State, and Emmanuel Richardson, University of Arizona. Along with six others, the charges include bribery, conspiracy, and fraud. The case against the coaches built on hundreds of wiretaps and videotapes, alleging numerous instances of bribes, up to $100,000. Prosecutors say agents and advisors would pay the coaches to pressure the players and their families to sign with them when the player turns pro. The bribe coaches showed little regard for the players' well-being. The complaint says USC's Bland bragged, I can definitely mold the players and put them in the lap of you guys. The other scheme alleges Adidas executive Jim Gatto helped funnel up to $150,000 to families of high school athletes to attend universities sponsored by the company, including, though not named, the University of Louisville. All of those charged today contributed to a pay-to-play culture that has no business in college basketball. Adidas, Louisville, and all the other schools said they will cooperate fully. The NCAA says it has no tolerance for this alleged behavior. 
But reforming a sport which generates a billion dollars from March Madness alone is unlikely, says renowned sports writer John Feinstein. The schools themselves are making so much money, they don't want to change things. They want to pretend that college athletics is clean. Tonight, all the coaches are suspended as prosecutors investigate the flagrant fouls tainting the game. Last night, Cardinals-Cubs. Ball's going to the crowd, so is Addison Russell to make the catch. Instead, he blows up this man's plate of nachos. And you know what? Even though he does bring him a new plate of nachos, I think he did him a favor in the first place. Because a lot of stadiums, nachos are basically stale corn chips and industrial waste. But not only does he get his nachos back, delivered by Addison Russell, he gets a selfie as well. They're not a delay of game or something. Well, no, apparently not. He was very patient. There you go. Thanks very much, Squire. You're welcome. Checking with Jay Durant now, the preview of Global News at 11 tonight. Jay? Thank you, Chris. We'll have more on the rally in favor of LGBTQ support programs in the Langley School District. You've heard from supporters. Tonight, we'll also be speaking with those who oppose it. Also tonight, a family from Prince George is rather concerned after finding a bullet hole in their bathroom window. They called police who are now investigating. We'll tell you what authorities believe may have caused this, and it's not what you may think. Those stories are much more coming up tonight at 11. Intriguing. Mm -hmm. All right, thanks, Jay. Well, all bets are off, or at least new ones are. The British bookies' unexpected wager on Prince Harry's royal romance next. Coming up on ET Canada, we're in Halifax to celebrate the 25th anniversary of This Hour Has 22 Minutes and then sit down with Rick Mercer to find out why he wants to end his show. Plus, order up the champagne because we're heading inside Leonardo DiCaprio's party pack. Oh, yeah, that's coming up at 7 right after the news. However, for now, it's back to you, Chris and Sophie. Cool. All right. Thank you, Cheryl. Well, now that Prince Harry and actress Meghan Markle have officially come out as a couple at the Invictus Games in Toronto... Speculation about another royal engagement is at full boil. In fact, it seems like such a sure thing that British bookmakers have made a rare decision. They walked hand in hand in front of the cameras for the first time. Prince Harry making a deliberately public display of royal affection for his girlfriend, American actress Meghan Markle. The couple greeted fans at the Invictus Games in Canada Monday, an international sports competition for injured and sick military veterans. The pair have been dating for over a year, and royal watchers say this British-American love story is significant. I mean, it takes the idea of the special relationship to a whole new level. You know, it's a bit of glamour. It's something a bit different. It's something that we haven't had for you know, many, many decades. Perfect timing. 36-year-old Markle stars in the TV legal drama Suits. And in a recent interview with Vanity Fair, she confirmed she and Prince Harry are in love. There's plenty of speculation about what happens next. Some betting shops here in London have actually stopped taking bets on a royal engagement since they believe it's not a matter of if, but when. I suspect we'll see an engagement announcement before the end of the year. The two sat separately at the opening ceremony for Toronto's Invictus Games last weekend. On Monday, they were showing affection on the sidelines. Meghan wore a designer blouse that is actually called the husband shirt. Lewis Warren jones CBS News, London. How would you the know bit that? Of information that was, yeah. Well, I mean, unusual. if that doesn't seal the deal, <laughs> right. I don't know what does. Yeah. Coincidence. So once you start wearing the husband's shirt, it's pretty much a done deal? Yeah. I guess so. And then, you know, right. they have boyfriend pants yeah. now. 
So she's upgraded really? to the yeah. husband shirt. <laughs> exactly. Next thing boyfriend you know, pants. Yeah, there's they're a gonna... style now. Is the boyfriend jeans? Does it? It kind of looks like they're a little baggy and oversized. Like yeah. you might be wearing your boyfriend's exactly. jeans, <laughs> as opposed to actually just wearing your boyfriend's jeans. <laughs> Does it gotcha. trouble you at all that we know all of this? <laughs> exactly. I don't, no, it would. No, it doesn't good. trouble me. Dialogue. It's actually very educational. 